Well, good morning. Good morning. If you don't know me, my name, there's people here who don't know me. Um, My name is Colton White. I'm one of the elders here at Renewal Church. Now, if you do know me and have been at Renewal for a while, um, there might be some questions on, okay, what is going on? You're on stage. What does that mean? So I want to clarify some things before we jump into our text this morning. If you haven't heard any of the announcements, um, yes, I am back. Um, I have resumed my duties here at Renewal. Um, And so I, if you don't know, um, I've been on sabbatical since August 12th, okay? Five months ago, um, the enemy attacked my family. The enemy attacked this church. That is what he does. He seeks to steal, kill, and destroy anything that would bring glory to God. And just to be honest, our life kind of crumbled in a moment. Um, It just kind of crumbled. I mean, the first two months of the sabbatical was not a sabbatical. It felt like survival. And it was hard. Um, But it gave Katie and I, the sabbatical, the tools, space, and perspective to fight back. And like he always does, God gets the final word. Um, For us, he showed his sovereignty, his power, and his grace. And we will forever be thankful. He gets the final word on our marriage. He gets the final word on Renewal Church. He gets the final word on your marriage. God cannot be defeated. It's impossible. So, yes, my sabbatical is over, and I'm excited. I'm excited to get back to work. The only work that matters, the proclamation of the gospel for the glory of God. And I want you to know that I'm so thankful for you. Like, seriously, I'm so thankful for the many phone calls, the text. I'm thankful for my brother and sister-in-law who sat with us countless nights. I'm thankful for Jed, <laughs> the goofy nephew, um, who kept us laughing. It, it, it was just a really hard and good season. And I know that you were praying. And so I just want to say thank you. Now, Practically, what does it mean that I'm back? I've already had some ask me, okay, are you the lead pastor at Renewal Church now? No. (laughs) The short answer to that is no. Will you be preaching every week? No, I will not. This is a discussion that we will be having as a church over the coming weeks and months. But before we get to any discussion about the leadership structure of Renewal and who is doing what and who has what titles, I think as a church, as a body, we need to ask God what he wants. What does he want? We need to hear from him, we need the Spirit's leading. And so if we could, just for the foreseeable future, focus on the only thing that will lead us to correct decisions, the Spirit's leading. Focus on His Word. He has put His Spirit in us. May we never forget that. Proclamation, leading, being led by the Spirit, that is who we are and that is what we will do. So for the next month or two, I won't be preaching every week. We'll still continue with the rotation because my main goal right now is to connect with each of you. Life didn't, life didn't stop for you, and so I want to hear how you're doing, how your heart is. Um, God has called me to shepherd you along with the other elders here at Renewal, so I want to hear your heart. But for this moment, this morning, is Daniel 6, and it's God's Word. So I'm going to read it to you in its entirety, and um, then we'll pray. So go with me to Daniel 6. It says, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom, 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. 
and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom the satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king, Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. They came near and they said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you. O king, are the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. But then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king established can be changed. Then the king commanded, And Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid over on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet, with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then, at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the dens of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them 
and broke all their bones in pieces. Verse 25, then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my real dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. Enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. So if you ask most preachers, there are two types of passages that are the most difficult to teach. The first is um, the type of passages that are strange or unfamiliar, or maybe they're complicated in the Greek language, or maybe they have some contradicting theological ideas that you kind of have to go through, or maybe it's something like Ezekiel or Revelation. And so that's the first type. The second type is the type of passage that is so familiar, <laughs> like everybody knows it, like this one in chapter six. So if we did a little word association, I'll start a phrase and you finish it, Daniel and... Everybody knows this, right? Most people, not just Christians, have either studied or have at least heard of Daniel and the lions. And many of you were taught this through singing vegetables, right? <laughs> World Magazine has a Daniel of the year. So is it possible that this chapter has become so familiar that it no longer speaks to us in the way that it should? Has the richness and depth of what happens here been lost because this story of Daniel, it's, it's bigger than the lion's den. This story reveals our desperate need for God. It reveals a God who will not desert us when we trust in him, a God whose glory will, who won't be stolen or denied. For the sixth time in six chapters, we see the same narrative. Okay, so looking back, the sixth time in six chapters, we see the, the same narrative. There is a problem God's people pass a test, and then there is a promotion. Now, things are about to change next week. If you're familiar with Daniel, things are about to get really tricky. In the remaining six chapters, everything changes, okay? It's going to seem like a very different type of book, where the first six chapters are kind of familiar. They've got some familiar stories. They've got similar themes, right? The next six chapters will show some passages that are difficult and unfamiliar, but to this point, the, the pattern's been the same. There is a pressure on God's people to conform. They withstand that pressure and they prosper. So what I want to do with this chapter is not simply walk through the narrative of Daniel chapter 6, but I actually want to pull each character out. Because I think if we do that, God will teach us something about ourselves and about himself. So we'll pull each character out and look at them individually. Our first one is a foolish king. Which, by the way, there are five characters in this story, okay? And the final one is not mentioned, but he's foretold. And so we'll get to him in a minute. But the first one is a foolish king, Darius and Cyrus the Great. So who are these kings? Well, there is a lot of historical record outside of the Bible regarding Cyrus, otherwise known as Cyrus the Great. You might have learned about him in school, but Cyrus became king of the Persians in 550. BC. Ten years later, he led a successful revolt against the Medes, and then he united the Medes and the Persians, and then they fought successfully against the Greek forces, and then he turned his attention to the Babylon 
in 540 BC. Now, that's what we read about last week in chapter 5 with King Belshazzar. Okay, so that's King Cyrus. He's a great king. He's conquered many people. What about Darius? Well, there is no independent historical record of Darius, which is interesting. Meaning, outside of the Bible, this dude doesn't exist. So the question is, okay, what do we do with that? Some have taken that stance, that that idea to say that Darius then is a fictional character here. He doesn't actually exist. But if you believe in the inspiration of Scripture, you know that that's not true. There's more happening here. And so who is Darius? Well, there are two possible explanations. First is to think that Darius is a royal title that is given to someone else, maybe one of Cyrus's generals. That was a pretty common thing to do. When a city would be conquered, a general would come in, take on a kingly name, and hold that name until the true king arrived. But the more popular belief is that Darius and Cyrus are actually the same person, okay? And there are several pieces of evidence for this. Kings would often have personal names, and then they would have kingly names. The pope does this. When they become pope, they take on a great papal name like John or Francis, which I wish John Francis was here but he's in the kids. Um, also, in Daniel 5.31, it says, And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, we know from historical sources that Cyrus was about 60 years old when he came to reign, so it would fit that chronolog- chronologically. The big question I had this week, and maybe you had as we read through the chapter, was verse 28, because it's kind of weird. It says, So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and Cyrus the great. And so here you have what seems to be two different kings, but that may not be the case because you see something similar in 1 Chronicles 5.26 where it says, the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, the spirit of Tilgath, Pilazar, king of Assyria. Similar gram- grammatical construction where it's not giving the name of two different rulers, but the names of the same ruler. So a legitimate way to translate verse 28 could be This Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, that is the reign of Cyrus the Persian. That was a lot of historical stuff. All that to say, we believe, it's probable, not 100%, that Darius and Cyrus are actually the same person. So that's what we're going to be, what we're going to go with. Now, Darius is portrayed as a well-meaning but rather weak and easily manipulated king. The officials declare to him, you have all power. But in reality, who has the power in this story? It's the satraps. It's it's the officials. It wouldn't be the first time that someone appealed to someone's worth or power to get them to do what they wanted them to do. So Darius agrees to this injunction that no one should make any appeal to God besides himself for 30 days. Now, in verse 14, if you notice, Darius is upset when he learns that he's been tricked into this injunction, that this injunction had an ulterior Motive And Darius has willingly fallen into that trap. Because Daniel's an old man. He has served faithfully over several administrations. And Darius respects Daniel. And he doesn't want to see this man who he respects and has a great reputation thrown to the lions. And there's a lesson to be learned here. The only one with the real power, the only one who is truly in control at any moment is God. You can assume that you have control of your life. You can assume that if you move the pieces a certain way, that you will have a perfect life and a perfect family and everything will be great. But you know that's not true. And we as a church, we especially know this. We are not in control here. We can have the perfect church. We can have the best structure. We can have the best preaching. We can make it look perfectly put together. But at the end of the day, it is God who is in control. 
He determines what happens. You can have the ear of any politician, but their power only goes as far as God allows it. And the picture of Darius here, honestly, is a rather helpless man. I mean, he's a conqueror. He, he's a king, but he's helpless, and he's scrambling. Like, think about it. We hear nothing of Daniel's night with the lions. We don't know what happened throughout the night in the lions, and he could have been singing Hakuna Matata with the lions. Means no worry. We don't know what happened. He could have been petting the lions or riding the lions. But what we do know is that Darius, in his presumed luxurious room, in his comfy bed, was restless. I read a quote this week. It said, it's better to be a child of faith in a den of lions than a king in a palace without faith. And if you took a bird's eye view of this moment where Daniel is in the lion's den and Darius is in his room in his palace and asked the question, okay, who's the blessed one here? Most people would be tempted to say, well, Darius. But that wouldn't be true because Darius has no peace. He has no faith. And so he's restless and he's scrambling. So we have a foolish king. Our second character, our characters, is a group of lying politicians. They are called the satraps. It's just another word for governor in the Persian empire. And verse two says that over them, there were three high officials and Daniel was one of them. And so the satraps gave an account to Daniel so that the king might suffer no loss. Now this is probably in reference to fiscal matters. So taxes are being paid. There's no rebellion happening so Daniel, as one of these high officials, helps King Darius keep things in check. And Daniel is so good at it. He's so good that he is distinguished above the other high officials, and those governors don't like that. In verse 4, it says, The high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel and their distaste for Daniel. It goes beyond just it goes beyond just that Daniel is favored among the king. It's directly connected to his relationship with with God, because in verse 13 it says, They answered him and said before the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah. It's almost like you can hear the distaste in their mouths when they say that. And these governors, they're also liars. In verse 7 it says, All the, the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors, and the governors are all agreed. All? Really? I don't think Daniel was asked about this. And what you see here is something that is still very much a reality. Sometimes the kingdom of darkness simply hates the kingdom of light. The best explanation that I can give for why they do this or why someone else may do what they do or why sin happens in general is because sometimes the kingdom of darkness just hates the light. And that's what you see here. Why did these governors do what they did? You could say they were jealous. You could say they wanted more power. You could say that it was because Daniel was a Jew. But ultimately what it comes down to that in this world, there is a kingdom of darkness and there is a kingdom of light and the darkness will always try to destroy the light. But the king of light reigns every single time. He has promised salvation. He has promised hope. He has promised peace. And every day you feel it. There is another kingdom that wants to destroy that a kingdom that wants you to believe that you are actually in control of your life, that you can find hope in money, that you can find hope in power, that you can find peace in a secret sin, and at the center of that kingdom is a liar. And that liar pits us against each other. That liar pits us against God. It convinces us that we don't need him. And that's what happened with these governors. They sow lies, and they find a way to send Daniel to the lion. 
So we have a foolish king. We have some corrupt politicians. Third, we have a faithful servant. Remember, Daniel is living in exile. It would have been incredibly difficult for him to be faithful to God under the law, to do things like keep the Sabbath or honor the food laws. And he's challenged here with keeping the first commandment. You shall have no gods other than me. And believe it or not, we're no different. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. And we're not exiles in the promised land. We're exiles in Babylon. When I was in seminary, the conversation of the Christian faith in our world was largely about a post-Christian world. Like that's how we would talk about faith in this world, meaning that Christians operated, operated in a place where Christianity was not the norm, right? But regardless, Christianity was largely accepted. However, I think we are moving very close to going out of a post-Christian world into more of an anti-Christian world. Maybe not so much in Texas, but in other parts of the United States. <coughs> Sorry. Um, and it's important to note here that what Daniel, what does Daniel do when he is pressured to conform to the kingdom of darkness? He prays. He prays. He doesn't scheme. He doesn't beg for mercy from Darius. He doesn't wallow in self-pity. He looks at Jerusalem and he prays. Now, why does he look at Jerusalem? Well, when Solomon built the temple, he said, if we are ever in exile, that we should look towards Jerusalem in prayer so that God would have mercy. It's no different when we pray and then we look up, almost acknowledging that we are strangers in a strange land and we need God's help. And verse 10 is perhaps one of the most stunning passages in this chapter, maybe the whole book. It says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed. So when life gets hard for Daniel, when circumstances aren't good, does he complain? Does he give up? What does he do? It says, he went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. That last line is the key, as he had done previously. He doesn't just pray when the walls are closing in. He has a rhythm of prayer in his life. You ever looked around at other people's circumstances and wondered, okay, what would I do if I were ever in their circumstances? What would I do? I think most of us assume that we would handle those circumstances a little bit better than they would. Um, But here's the reality. What you practice in the absence of hard circumstances will be practiced in the midst of hard circumstances. In other words, how can it be that Daniel, in the midst of mounting pressure and glooming circumstances, can so quickly run to prayer? Because that's who he is. He knows nothing Else. And so here's a question for you. What will you do when your life starts to fall apart? What will you do when you lose your job? What will you do when your marriage falls apart or something happens to your spouse or one of your children? What will you do when the perfect picture of what you thought life would be like doesn't happen? What will you do when the kingdom of darkness attacks from every side? You will do then what you do now. Right now, are you settling for the things of this world? Are you settling for the things of this world? Are you running to sin? Are you conforming to the way the world thinks or lives? Are you wallowing in self-pity? Or are you praying? Are you confessing your sins to God? Are you drinking in his word? Are you listening to the leading of the Holy Spirit? Are you a voice for unity in the faith family? Or a voice for disunity? Because what you do now is what you will do then. What God is building in you now will show its fruit 
when the kingdom of darkness attacks. And Daniel has shown himself to be a man of prayer. And so that's what he does when things get difficult. He simply does what he has always done. See, it's interesting here. It's tempting to say that the danger was in the den with the lions, but that's not true. The real danger was the countless days before where Daniel had to choose to get on his knees and pray. See, the, the battle wasn't fought in the den. It was fought on his knees, pleading to God those countless days before. God, have mercy on me. You are my king. You are my sustainer. I can't do this. God, can I trust you? I, I do trust you. It was fought on his knees. The, the real danger was not dying to the lions. The real danger was the threat of the loss of his own faith that he would give up his habit of worship. Just imagine the temptation to fight for his own preservation, his own security, his own life, but he didn't give in to that temptation. He set his feet on the Lord. There's one more thing I wanna say about Daniel here. He's 85 years old at this point, okay? His life has been filled with tests. I mean, like one test after another. In verse 22, he says, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. Now, blameless does not mean that he was without sin, but rather God had brought him a test and God found him to be blameless. At 85 years old, God is still testing Daniel. And it's easy to fall into this line of thinking that your hardest circumstances have already passed. You've already passed the test of faith, but in this life, there will be many tests many opportunities to bow to the comfort of money or to conform to the way the world thinks or to compromise on your convictions. But prayer was Daniel's statement to the world, there is a better king than Darius. That's what it was. And that leads me to our fourth character, a mighty God. Ultimately, what is this story about? Is it about Darius? Is it about a group of corrupt politicians? Is it about Daniel? Is it about the lions? no. This story is about the glory and the love, faithfulness of God. We hear almost nothing from Daniel. For most of the story, he's silent. We hear more from the satraps than we do from Daniel. Daniel goes quietly into the den, and we only hear him when he comes out. We never hear from the lions. Like, I could have spent 20 minutes talking about lions. I could have told you about the zoo, what happened when I was five. I could have told you about the power of a bite of a lion, I could have told you about how having a lion's den was common in ancient culture and how officials and kings would use them for sport. But that would have been a waste of time because this story is, it's about God's glory. I was tempted to title this sermon, Will the Real Lion King Please Stand Up? <laughs> but I thought, no. <laughs> Immovable faith was more appropriate. Immovable faith in a mighty God, Daniel had a faith in God that was immovable, meaning that when his circumstances changed, his faith remained the same. And there's something beautiful, a beautiful confidence in someone who, who knows who they are before God, and they know who God is. They know that they belong to him, and their faith is not dependent on their circumstances. But, but I want to make one thing clear here. Having immovable faith does not mean that there is not freedom to wrestle with doubt or fear. I think we get this confused sometimes. And so if you're someone who hears this story and the only lesson that you hear is that you're a failure because you don't have perfect faith, then that, that be, because, instead of faith, you, you feel doubt or fear, 
and you feel like you're lesser than, then you need to know, and that message is not coming from God. That's from the enemy. You should never be ashamed of those feelings. You should wrestle with them. It's okay. Like, take a breath. We're not perfect in here. There are no perfect people here. We all wrestle with the things of God. It's tempting to hide those doubts and fears in a place like this, that you think that we would be disappointed in you if we knew that about you. But in reality, there's no better place and there's no better people for you to do that wrestling with. Immovable faith does not mean that you never struggle. But I think it means that even if you do struggle, man, you do whatever you can to keep your eyes fixed on God. And you fight those feelings and you fight those voices. And you say, man, I don't even know if this is true, but God, I will continue to press into you no matter what. And and so if you do struggle with faith, because I imagine there's people here that do, my encouragement to you is to keep pressing deeper into a God who is good and a God who has made you to be something new, to be renewed. He will show you who he is. That's what he does here in Daniel 6. He shows the entire world just who he is. Look at verse 25. It says, King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. Think about who's saying that. It's a foreign king. He's saying, enduring forever, his kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. God has one purpose from the beginning to the end, and that is every story tells the story of God's goodness and glory. Have you noticed that time and time again, God shows who he is through a pagan king. <laughs> he does it all throughout this book. In Daniel 2, 47, in Nebuchadnezzar, he says, the king answered and said to Daniel, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Daniel 3, 28 and 29, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, <laughs> their house laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And then again in Daniel 4, and then again here in Daniel 6, it reminds me of Psalm 138 where it says, All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. We have a mighty God. Now, remember there are five characters, a foolish king, Jealous governors, a faithful servant, and a mighty God. So who's the fifth? Well, the fifth character isn't mentioned directly, but he is foreshadowed. The fifth character is the risen Christ. See, the story of Daniel sets the stage for the greater servant to come. There's an incredible amount of parallels in the story of Daniel and the story of Christ. Christ would be the victim of a conspiracy against him. He would be betrayed by the people closest to him. They would say, we have no king but Caesar's. Caesar, just like they would say, we have no king but you, O Darius. Like Daniel, Jesus would be arrested at the place of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. The higher authorities found no fault in Jesus. Darius found no real fault in Daniel, yet both Pilate and Darius, both Pilate and Darius give in to those beneath them so that they might save face. Jesus would be sealed in a tomb. 
just like Daniel, greeted by an angel, just like Daniel. And to the amazement of everyone, just like Daniel, Christ would be found alive. Not the next day, but the third day, to show that we serve a God who raises the dead. Daniel experienced the power of the age to come. He experienced the lion and the lamb lying together. In the early church, Christians would decorate their graves with the image of Daniel, standing with the lions. It was seen as an image of resurrection. It was seen as an image of triumph over the grave because the story of Daniel is the story of Christ. It's a declaration that the kingdom of darkness shall not reign. It can't reign because we have a better and truer king because he will have the victory in my life and in your life, no matter how bleak things look, how hard it might get. So church, we have some decisions to make. I don't mean decisions about church structure or how we set up the chairs or how we do home groups. We have a decision to make about what we believe about God. Who do we believe him to be? Do we believe him to be faithful? Do we believe him to be mighty? Do we believe that Jesus has come, died, and risen from the grave? Do we believe that the Spirit lives in us? Do we believe in the authority of his word? Do we believe that he is better than anything in this world? Do we believe that he hears our prayers? And so before we do anything else as a faith family, we look at this story and say, yeah, we believe. We will pray. We will run to you before we do anything else in the coming weeks. We get on our knees and pray because he hears us and he's good and he's better.